want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nahum as we continue in, in our series through the Minor Prophets. Now, the book of Nahum you're going to find right after the book of Micah and right before the book of Habakkuk. And in all honesty, I don't remember ever hearing a sermon on the book of Nahum before. And I know for certain that I've never preached a, a sermon on the book of Nahum before. And yet I believe that this often overlooked small three chapter book has a lot to offer us this morning. It helps us, I, I believe, even answer some of the toughest questions we receive as, as Christians that people so often ask like, why does God, if, if he's a good God, why does he allow evil to exist? If he's good, then, then why is evil allowed to be prolonged? Why does it exist in the world? And so we accuse God of, of not being good because of his patience and loving kindness. And then on the other hand, we can accuse God of being not loving enough, not patient enough. Like why, if God loves everyone, then why doesn't he just save everybody. And so we both accuse God of being too patient and too kind and then not kind or patient enough. And today's passage helps answer that, not just by telling us what God is going to do, but particularly in chapter one, we're going to see who God is and that that's ultimately going to leave us with a choice. When we see who God is, will we find our refuge and safety in Him? Or will we reject Him and be rejected by Him? And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. And so as you are turning and finding your way to the book of Nahum, I just want to give you a little bit of background because Nahum in many ways is the, the sequel, the part two to the book of Jonah. That if you remember in the book of Jonah, God calls his prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah wants nothing to do with that. He hates Nineveh, hates the people of Nineveh, so he runs in the opposite direction. The only thing is that God can run faster. Chased him down, pursuing Jonah's heart, leading him to repentance and transformation until Jonah did go to that city, did proclaim, though reluctantly, God's message. And it says that the people of Nineveh, this enemy of the nation of Israel, responded in repentance. They fell from the least to the greatest in ashes and sackcloth, repenting of their sin before the God of Israel, the great I Am. And it says that Jonah was furious. He was mad. It says in Jonah chapter 4, 1, he was greatly displeased. And, and Jonah became furious with God, saying, I knew it. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. You're one who relents from sending disaster because ultimately Jonah wanted them to be destroyed. And he was mad at God for being compassionate and patient and abounding in faithful love. And so he's like, fine, just, just kill me. Just put an end to all of this. And that's where the book of Jonah ended. But now here we are in the book of Nahum, and, and over a hundred years have passed, and what was this tender-hearted repentance toward God has now returned to this hard-hearted rebellion against God. 
This, it says in verse 1, is a pronouncement concerning Nineveh. This is what it is being spoken to, that the repentance of one generation is now the rebellion of the next. And they've gone back to their, the brutality of their ways against all the nations surrounding them, and in particular to the northern kingdom of Israel that has now been defeated, destroyed, and is no more come the book of Nahum. That the, the northern kingdom of Israel has been taken off with a brutal code of conduct of war for the Assyrians, taken away from their land and into slavery to Assyria. And though it was just the northern kingdom that was defeated, many of the, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, was also defeated in that siege, although Jerusalem itself did not fall. But the southern kingdom is, they're paying tribute to the Assyrians. They're having to, to pay this tax to those who were victor over the northern kingdom. And here's the thing I want you to keep in mind, that as we think about ancient antiquity and what would have been happening in the mind of the Assyrians at this point is that they believed that if they conquered a nation or conquered a people, then that meant that they had also conquered their God. There was greater than their God that they worshiped because obviously their God was weaker because he didn't protect them. And so for the Assyrians, the, the greatest God in their pantheon of God was Asher, the Lord of the wind, the one who installs kings and kingdoms in their mind, the one who protected them and was behind them as they rode in with such brutality in other nations. And in foolish pride, the Assyrians assumed that their victory meant that not only had they defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, but they had also defeated the great I Am, the one to whom they once surrendered. They believed that now they stood upon his neck in victory. But God is about to speak. He's about to say who he is. And I believe that this would have brought, should have brought tremendous fear to the Ninevites. And this is what I want us to see this morning. Who God is, particularly in chapter 1, who He says He is in the midst of our questions, in the midst of the questions that I'm assuming that Judah, the nation of Israel, must have felt. Why? Why God? As God's people, why did you allow them to be victorious? And this wicked, evil nation seems to be experiencing success. And yet here we are. They've been defeated. We are in fear, paying tribute to them. Where are you, God? Why would you do what you're doing? And the explanation that God gives is by telling us who he is. So that we would know him because as we know him then we come to understand his ways because his thoughts are not our thoughts his ways are not our ways and so he's going to tell us who is like our god because he's a jealous god look here in verse 2 when it says the lord is jealous an avenging god the lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath the lord takes vengeance against his foes he is furious with his enemies can you imagine if you're in nineveh how they should have heard this 
what it is saying, I am a jealous God. You shall have no other gods before me. Why are you serving Asher? Why are you serving this pantheon of gods? I am the great I am, and I am a jealous God. But here's the thing I want us to keep in mind. God is not like us. His jealousy is not like my jealousy. That if I get jealous because some other guy is hitting on my wife, I can't think that, oh, God's jealousy is like my jealousy because often my jealousy is rooted in fear. It's rooted in insecurity. It can be rooted in control. And then we think, oh, God's jealous too. So he must be insecure. He must be fearful. Don't talk to that God. Don't worship that God. Only worship me. And we put it as some sort of deficiency upon God. But I want to recast how God is not like us. Imagine if I had 10 cups of water here on the table. Right, And one of these is, is the cup of the Lord, this cup of life, of pure water that heals the soul, that gives not just life today, but life forever. And he offers it to you and he's saying, here, drink of this cup and be made whole, be healed. Don't drink from these other cups, drink from this one. I'm jealous that I want you to have life but we're like, well, what about that one? What about this other one? What if I want to drink from that? And it's like, no, that will bring death and destruction. That will bring you harm. Is it insecurity that God is saying, no, 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 like my cup better than these others? No, it's not out of insecurity or fear. It's out of concern for you and what's good for you and saying, no, this is what's best. And it says that he is avenging and vengeful God because when other people take these false promises, these lies that will bring death and destruction and begin to offer it as this counterfeit for what actually gives life, it says God will avenge. God will protect those who cannot protect themselves. He will be vengeful to proclaim what gives life and what doesn't. He is not indifferent. It is out of concern for us that God is jealous, that he is avenging, that he is vengeful. And to who? It says to his foes, to my enemies, those who have set their heart against me in the life that I offer, who offer to others and drink for themselves death and destruction to those, there will be judgment. And then look at what it says in verse three. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. See, on one hand, we have this strong, closed fist of God saying, I am, avenge I am vengeful and avenging, fierce with wrath. And on this other side, with equal strength, there is a tenderness of slow to anger, but great in power. The tender hand of God is not weakness. It is powerful that he is patient, calling us drink from the cup of life. He is good and the guilty will be punished. And so we see the jealousy of God, but we also see the power of God. Look at this later on in the second half of verse three, his path 
is in the whirlwind and storm and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He's saying, I am the great I am. You think Asher, your God, the greatest God in the pantheon of gods for Assyria is great, that he's the Lord of the winds. He is my stepping stool. On him, I make my path. I make my path on the whirlwind in the storm. Consider this for a moment. What we've all been watching as we watched the news as Hurricane Ian approached and we saw the radar things and the swirling storm that approached our state, its size and mass and strength, the destruction that it brought, what seemed so powerful, so mighty, and yet God says, I make my path on the whirlwind in the storm. It is but a pebble beneath his foot. That is the might and power of our God. You think the wind is powerful? You, you think a hurricane is powerful? It is nothing in comparison to our God. If God rebukes the sea, it goes on to say, the seas would dry up. If he rebukes the mountains, they would wither into dust. If he rebukes the nations, they will crumble. Mountains, it says, shakes. The hills melt. The earth itself will tremble when the Lord speaks. So tell me, tell me, who can stand? in the presence of God's anger when it is unleashed? Who can endure his vengeance when it burns like fire? This is who God is. He is a powerful God. He is a jealous God. This is what God is like. But then, then look at verse seven. The Lord is good. He's good. It's not like this. He's not bad. That even when we don't understand his ways, his ways are good. Even when we don't understand his thoughts, his thoughts are good. Even when God doesn't do what we think he should do, we know that in his character, he is good. The Lord is good. But then it goes on and it says that he is safe. That God is good and God is safe. He's a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. Think of the might and power of God that was just proclaimed and then the tenderness of God that's now being expressed when it says that, that the Lord is good. He is safe, a stronghold in a day of distress. Consider this. Consider what we've just been through last week and what we all do in preparation for a hurricane coming in, right? We bring everything that's outside inside. We board up windows, sandbags around the house if you're in a flooding area, and we take fortress inside the home as the winds howl around us. And we pray that the winds stay outside, that the windows stay in one peace that the rainwater that accumulates outside does not come inside and we build this mini fortress in the midst of a storm in which we seek safety that is our god but what happens then when the storms come inside the home 
What happens when, when the storm and the winds of life rage inside the home and in our relationships and with our kids and with our spouse? What happens when it feels like they can't be escaped? Where do we take shelter? What is our stronghold and who is it but in God? He is our hiding place. He is our safety in which we hide. God is good and God is safe. And here's the thing, he cares. So you have this picture of a, a fierce, powerful God who the hurricane is a, a, a pebble beneath his foot. But then we see that God is also our shelter, our refuge, our safety. And there is a tenderness of care toward us. He cares for those who take refuge in him. That the strong arms of God hold you tenderly, not out of weakness, but out of great strength and power that's then being used for your protection and good. That he cares what happens to you. Now, here's the thing. There is a passage that both Nahum and I believe Jonah refers to when he accuses God. Like, hey, I know what you're like. And in Nahum, we see in this description of what God is like. All find their root in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It is this declaration that we see declared throughout Scripture of what God is like. As the Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed the Lord. You want to know what God is like? You want to know what his character is like? Listen to these words from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate. He's compassionate. He's a gracious God. He's slow to anger in abounding, abounding in faithful love, overflowing in faithful love toward you, abounding in faithful truth. He maintains this faithful love to a thousand generations. He forgives iniquity. He, he forgives the mistakes, the failures. He, he forgives intentional rebellion. He forgives sin. This is who God is. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Don't assume God's abounding love and faithfulness for weakness. Don't misunderstand it for being permission for those activities. No, God will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing consequences of the father's sin, the father's iniquity, onto the children, onto the grandchildren, onto the great-great-grandchildren for the third and fourth generation. See, our God is like a mountain. And he's either going to be a mountain of mercy or mountain of misery. 
See, look at what it says. He is a merciful God. He is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He forgives mistakes, rebellion, sin. Why does God allow evil in the world? Why is it that things happen that I don't agree with? Why does he permit these things? Because he is a good and patient God. Because he's so abounding in faithful love that he wants to chase down and draw hearts that are presently rebellious toward him into surrender. That he gives time and space to draw hearts to himself. It is not the weakness of God. It is not a condemnation of God. It is a demonstration of his character of pursuing with compassion and mercy those who bear his image to bring them into surrender. This is the heart of of God that is merciful and long-suffering and enduring, but do not mistake that for weakness. Do not mistake that for permission of evil, because he makes it clear the guilty will not go unpunished. He will punish the guilty. There will be consequences for sin will come down. And so why doesn't God just save everyone? Because he is a good God. And there is wickedness and evil in this world. And God is not indifferent to that wickedness and evil. He will bring judgment. And the fierceness of his wrath will be poured out. He is a vengeful and avenging God, it tells us. So do not mistake the goodness and patience of God for indifference or weakness. The same God that protects in whom we take refuge will also crush the proud. And in poetic form, the book of Nahum continues describing what it looks like for the mountain of God to be a mountain of refuge or to be a mountain of rejection. And we see what that rejection looks like against the city of Nineveh. And it really is in this poetic form when you read it in chapter 2, verse 10. It says, desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, insides churn, every face grows pale. And then in Nahum, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, it says, woe. Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing sword, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over their dead because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery, who treats nations and clans like merchandise. By her prostitution and sorcery, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to the nations, your shame to the kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you, and then all who see you will recoil from you, saying, Nineveh, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show her sympathy?
where can I find anyone to comfort you? See, in the mountain of God, we will either seek refuge or it will become our destruction. And so as we close this morning, I want us to consider this question, to think through this in light of the gospel. Is the mountain of God your protection or your rejection? This is the greatest question we can ask ourselves in light of this book. Because see, in pride, some assume that the patience of God is his weakness, his permissiveness, his, him allowing evil to exist for a time so that it may lead to repentance is actually his permission for it to happen. And it is not. And in pride, we think ourselves greater than the great I am. We seek life by our own means. And yet, this is warning us we will be crushed by his power and righteousness. Will the mountain of God be our refuge or our destruction? Because when he is our refuge, we come in humility before God. And we seek our safety in, in Him. And, and here's what I want us to see, especially when we think through chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. See, we see this first woe in chapter 1. Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. This is the, the judgment, the indictment. You're in danger of being devastated by the righteousness of God in whom you once surrendered, but now you're walking in rebellion. And now you will be crushed by him. But see, when we come to God in humility, when we surrender before him, when we seek refuge in the mountain of our God, I want us to understand what that means and what Jesus did to purchase and secure that place of safety for us. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot. And the thought that came through my mind was the cracking of the whip against the back of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as he was whipped and beaten within an inch of his life charging horses, flashing swords, spinning spear, as a crown of thorns was pressed upon his head. The sound of charging horsemen of the crowds crying out, crucify him, crucify him, as the crowds turned against him, recoiling from his mere appearance, the shame of nakedness that was ours was on Christ as they stripped him of his clothes and crucified him in nakedness before the crowds. Our rejection our devastation being poured out on him, the shame that was ours being poured out on Christ. Those from whom men hide their faces, 
was our Lord and Savior, so that in him we might be comforted, that we might be secured and cared for. Because the mountain of our God withstood the storm of God's fierce wrath on our behalf. And when we humble ourselves before him, we are saying he took our devastation so that we could be safe. Is God your protection or will he be your crushing judgment? I think this is the greatest application of the book of Nahum. But I also want to encourage us to consider, will this generation's repentance, will my present repentance before God be the end? Or what will it mean for the next generation? Will this generation's repentance be the next generation's rebellion? Or will this movement of God have roots that will be sustained through generations? See, you may notice I'm not in my home office. This week I've been in Houston, Texas, and I'm still in Houston, Texas. I've been here for meetings with church leaders that are representing cities across the U.S. and the globe that are seeking and praying for what does it look like for churches to collaborate together to help plant healthy, gospel-centered churches throughout our city. And, and talking about what this looks like, this move of God that seems to be happening across the globe and praying and asking God to do this work. And then I'm reading Nahum, and I'm thinking about the thousand people that move to the Orlando metro area every week. A thousand new people every single week that are moving in. And I think about, what does this mean? What does it mean, not just for me, but our church and our city? And I want to encourage us to pray in three ways, because I think the greatest thing we can do in response of that is not just, hey, let's go do this, but let's fall on our knees and surrender in the God who is our protection. Let's fall on our knees in ashes and sackcloth in repentance and trust and hope and faith that God would do this work in our lives, individually, personally, in our families. Like, ask God, pray, say, Lord, show me. Is there anything in my life of which you are jealous? Is there anything in my life where you are offering me your life, your comfort, and yet I am drinking from broken cisterns that bring destruction and death when you're offering me life? Is there anything I'm hoping in? Is there anything I'm trusting in of which you are jealous? Lord, lead my heart in purity back to you to find my hope and joy in you and you alone. It has to begin in our heart. Have the courage to ask God to sift your hearts, your motives, your affections, to purify you in the deepest aspects of your life, that you would be transformed thoroughly by His power, mercy, and grace. Pray for our church. Pray for our community of believers that gather together that our hearts would be surrendered to God, that whatever storms may swirl in our culture, in our world, or around us, that our refuge, our safety, our protection 
would be in Christ, in Christ alone. Not through methods, not through strategies, not through plans, but in Christ, in Christ alone. He would be our hope. He would be our victor. He would be our security. Let that be the legacy we leave, not just for today, not just this moment, but what about the generations to come? What about a hundred years from now? What will be the testimony of Cross Point Church? I pray that today's repentance would not lead to tomorrow's rebellion. Lord, do your work in us. And what does this mean for our city? What does it mean beyond ourselves, beyond our community, Lord, but for a city of people? Lord, would you do your work? Would you be glorified? Would you transform? Would you join the kingdom of believers across churches in our city to join together, to sing the praises of the one true king and kingdom of which we serve? Would you pray for our city? Would you pray for your neighbor? Would you pray for your coworker? Would you pray for the millions of people who come and visit every single year? We have an opportunity that as we seek our refuge and hope in God to proclaim the glory of Christ among all peoples. But it begins it begins in our own hearts. Am I living surrendered? Or am I living in a prideful arrogance? May we humble ourselves before God together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, in who you are, I thank you that you are compassionate. I thank you that you are gracious. I thank you that you're slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. I thank you that you maintain your faithful love toward us for generations upon generations, Lord. And may that be true. Purify our hearts before you today, Lord. And may you be glorified above all else. And in Jesus' name, amen.